No figure in biblical apocalyptic literature has captured the imagination of the masses quite like the beast, popularly known as the Antichrist, who is this shadowy, monstrous figure who haunts our eschatological dreams. Well, it has been the great delight of many to pour over Old Testament prophecies on the one hand and present-day newspapers on the other, trying to speculate as to his identity. Some are searching CNN for a European homosexual who ascends to the throne of a reconstituted Roman Empire. Others are looking for a Middle Eastern Arab a cruel tyrant known as the Assyrian. Even Hollywood has gotten in on the fun with that creepy-looking kid named Damien whom Gregory Peck's character secretly adopts while he's serving as an ambassador in Rome in the film The Omen. Needless to say, speculation and therefore confusion abounds. Today, Lord willing, we will cut through the speculative nonsense that surrounds this figure and we will look at the text and see what it actually says with regard to this character whom Revelation 13 calls the beast from the sea, whom Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 calls the man of lawlessness, and who in Daniel chapter 7 is known as the little horn, and in many other places besides. Before we explore the text of Revelation 13, however, we need to venture into the Old Testament because the vision of the beast from the sea that John sees in Revelation chapter 13 is in many ways a retelling of the vision of the four beasts which Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. So I'm going to invite you to actually turn back to the Old Testament, to the book of Daniel, comes right after the book of Ezekiel, and to the seventh chapter. Daniel chapter 7, look at verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And this beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. And after this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, 
And behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Daniel then sees a vision of the Ancient of Days who is seated upon a fiery throne and is preparing to judge the nations in verses 9 and 10. Followed by a vision of the Son of Man who ascends to the Ancient of Days on the clouds of heaven to receive from him all authority in heaven and on earth and an everlasting and indestructible kingdom. Verses 13 and 14. An angel then interprets the vision for Daniel in verse 17. These four beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever. Forever and ever. But Daniel still wanted to know about that little horn on the fourth beast. Whose mouth uttered great boasts and who made war upon the saints and prevailed upon them. Until the Ancient of Days came and rendered judgment on their behalf and gave to the saints the possession of an everlasting kingdom. Daniel seven twenty one and 22. So the angel obliges and he says, beginning in verse 23, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given over to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Now, delving into all of the details of Daniel's vision would take us too far afield this morning. So I simply want to give a brief overview of what Daniel saw as it pertains to John's vision in Revelation 13. The four beasts which Daniel saw arising from the sea are four kings and kingdoms which, from Daniel's perspective in the 6th century B.C., were to arise to world domination in the future. The first, the lion with eagle's wings, represents Babylon, the kingdom in power at the time that Daniel prophesied. The second, the bear that was poised to strike, the images of his paw with its claws out, getting ready to swat down, and it has three ribs in its mouth from a previous meal, and it's told to arise and devour much flesh. The second beast represents the Medo-Persian Empire, which overthrew the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. The third beast, which is the four-winged leopard, represents the Greek Empire, which under the leadership of Alexander the Great, conquered the known world in the latter half of the 4th century B.C. When Alexander died at a very young age, 
in 323 BC, without a male heir to his name, his empire was divided into four kingdoms, which are the four heads of the leopard. The fourth kingdom, which Daniel simply describes as terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, is the Roman Empire, which ruled virtually the entire world by the time Christ appeared. And by his life and death and resurrection inaugurated what in biblical terminology is the last age, the last days, this final age of tribulation before the consummation of the everlasting kingdom. There is a sense in which the Roman Empire, biblically speaking, is the last empire on the earth that continues to the time of Christ's second advent. From this final empire have arisen numerous kings and kingdoms throughout this age, represented by the ten horns on this fourth beast. And finally, there will arise a little horn who is synonymous with the beast from the sea of Revelation 13. His defeat at the end of the age will usher in the final judgment and the dawning of the age to come in which the saints will inherit the everlasting kingdom of God. Now, the bearing that this vision in Daniel chapter 7 has on Revelation 13 will become apparent as we work our way through that passage, which is now the third vision in this third vision cycle, which is known as the seven symbolic histories. So we've seen the, the history of the woman, the dragon, the woman and the dragon. We've seen the history of the woman, the dragon, and the children. And now we come to the history of the beast from the sea who is most often known and will be known to the rest of Revelation simply as the beast. Now you'll remember that chapter 12 ends with a little bit of foreshadowing. When the dragon's attempt to drown the woman in the wilderness with his flood of lies failed, John records that the dragon became furious with the woman who represents the church And went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, which represents individual saints. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And here's the foreshadowing. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now heresy and false doctrine may upset the church. But it will never succeed in utterly destroying those on whom God has set his seal. Jesus spoke to this protection, to this reality, to this perseverance of the saints in John chapter 10 when he called himself the good shepherd. John 10, 3, Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. Listen, a stranger, they simply will not follow, but they will flee from him. For they do not know the voice of strangers. See, the woman is protected and nourished by God in the wilderness. She is shepherded by a good shepherd who knows her and calls her by name and leads her out. And he does not allow the wolves to devour her. Nor the flood of lies to swallow her up. A true sheep will not follow the voice of a false Shepherd. So the dragon tries another tactic. 
If he cannot deceive the woman, the church, into abandoning her God and following after him, he will kill her offspring, Christians, and try to make them commit apostasy by placing them between the horns of a dilemma. By bringing them face to face with a choice between saving their life and losing their soul or losing their life and saving their soul. That is the role of the beast, which Satan calls forth from the sea. He brings Christians face to face with the choice of whether or not they're going to save their life or remain faithful to Jesus. Verse 1. And I saw the beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and a blasphemous, or blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. On the back of your bulletin, you're going to find five summary points, and we're going to get to those at the end. So I just want you to listen and follow along with me for a while, and then we're going to wrap it all up at the end. And I'm going to give you five truths about the beast of Revelation 13 that you'll be able to fill in. I think that you can see now, having been to Daniel chapter 7, the striking resemblance between this vision and that one. And it becomes clear what John is doing. In Daniel 7, the four winds of heaven, at God's command, churned up the sea, and out of the sea emerged four monstrous beasts in succession, each one more terrifying and dangerous than the one that had come before. In Revelation 13, the dragon brings forth a beast, one beast, from the sea, but this beast combines all of the characteristics of the four beasts of Daniel chapter 7. It has a mouth like a lion, the first beast. It has feet like a bear, the second beast. It resembles a leopard, the third beast. It has ten horns, the fourth beast, and blasphemous names like the little horn. In other words, the beast in John's vision, Revelation 13, combines into one all of the beasts in Daniel's vision and combines them into one ferocious monster, showing that all of the wicked kingdoms of this world which have arisen to make war upon the saints of God have behind them one satanic power and one satanic design. The location, the date, the nation, the means of conquest may differ, but the power behind these empires, these beasts, remains the same, as does the purpose for which they have been granted their authority, the purpose for which they have been summoned out of the sea of men. Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, the various Arab empires throughout history, the so-called Holy Roman Empire of the Middle Ages, the Third Reich, Stalin's Soviet Union, Mao's China, Kim Jong-un's North Korea, any number of Islamic states today that are crucifying and beheading the saints on beaches. Any state power that Satan uses to persecute and slaughter, make war upon the saints of the Most High, is the beast. 
Now, just as the beasts in Daniel 7 represented both kings and kingdoms, both institutions and individuals, so the beast of Revelation 13 represents both wicked, satanically empowered states and the wicked, satanically empowered rulers who rule over those states. It's the way this image works. That the beast has ten horns and seven heads. Okay, Thirteen chapters in now, you should know that ten and seven are, are very popular numbers in apocalyptic literature. literature. They, they denote fullness and completion. Seems to emphasize the fullness of the beast's oppressive power and the worldwide scope of his reign. The fact that the beast emerges out of the sea is important. In apocalyptic imagery, like Revelation, like Daniel, the sea is a symbol for the world. The chaotic, godly, godless, wicked nations of the world. That's why when John sees in Revelation 21 the vision of the new heavens and the new earth, he says, I saw no sea in it. He's not saying that there is not going to be large bodies of water in the new heavens and the new earth. He's saying there's not going to be any more beasts. There's not going to be any more wicked, godless nations. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. So there's no sea anymore. You remember that the sea beneath the feet of him who sits on the throne in Revelation chapter 4, John saw, saw as smooth as glass, which demonstrated God's absolute sovereignty over the realm of evil. This is also why it is the four winds of heaven in Daniel 7 that churn up the sea and bring forth the four beasts. Yet it is the dragon in Revelation 13 that summons the beast from the sea. Satan does not operate independently of God's sovereign authority. God reigns over Satan's wrath. Finally, you will remember that we were introduced to the beast actually two chapters ago in Revelation eleven seven, where John says that the beast arose out of the bottomless pit or the abyss to make war upon the saints. And I think this provides us with some insight into the essential nature of this beast from the sea. There is a demonic, satanic power behind the beastly states and beastly rulers of history whose origin is hell, the abyss, the bottomless pit. But this demonic spirit inhabits, infuses, and empowers Men, the sea, who act as his puppets. In other words, the beast is both from the realm of demons and from the world of men. Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? One textual note needs to be made before we step back and kind of observe the big picture of what John's doing in this vision. The word that is translated by my Bible as wound is the Greek word plague, from which we get the word plague. In fact, it's translated every other place in Revelation as plague. And it always denotes God's divine judgment upon wickedness. 
therefore it would seem that this wound, this plague that is on the beast's head refers to an act of divine judgment upon the beast. And so I would relate it back to that Genesis 3.15 serpent crushing blow that was affected at the cross. I think the mortal wound on the head of the beast was suffered when Christ died for sinners. That the mortal wound appears to be healed would then point to the fact that even though the decisive and deadly blow against Satan and his beast was struck by Christ at his death and resurrection, the dragon and the beast still appear to be alive and well in these last days. The mortal wound appears to be healed. Though their days, in fact, are numbered and their power is restricted and limited. Now, if we step back... And we just picture what's going on, not just in this section of Revelation 13, but in all of Revelation 13, because this week and next actually belong together. I think we can see what John is doing. John is observing that the dragon has set up the beast as a counterfeit Christ. The parallels between the lamb and the beast are are too numerous. I count 13 at least, to be coincidental. Just follow along with me. Don't try to write it down, you'll get lost. It'll be on the website tomorrow. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet set themselves up as a counterfeit trinity, a grotesque and distorted reflection of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Even their functions are reflective of one another. The beast performs the will of the dragon, and the false prophet gets people to worship the beast, even as the son performs the will of the father, and the spirit exalts the son. The beast is the image of Satan, who brought him forth, having ten horns and seven heads, just like the dragon. You can compare 13.1 with 12.3. Even so, Christ is the image of the father, who brought him forth from all eternity. Colossians 1.15 and Hebrews 1.3. The beast has ten diadems, that is ten crowns upon his head, 13.1. The lamb has many crowns, 19.12. The beast has ten horns, 13.1. The lamb has seven horns, 5.6. The beast has blasphemous names written on him, 13.1. Christ has glorious names written on him, chief among which is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Revelation 19, verses 12 and 16. The dragon has given to the beast his power, his throne, and his authority. 13.2. The father has given to Christ, the lamb, his power. 5.12. His throne. 3.21. And his authority. 12.10. Both the beast and Christ are said to have authority over every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. 13.7 and 5.9. One of the beast's heads was slain and then healed. 13.3. Even as the lamb was slain and yet stands. 5.6. Having been raised from the dead. The dragon and the beast received the worship of their followers, 13.4. 
even as the Father and the Son are worshipped by the saints. Chapter 5, 12 and 13, and chapter 7, 9 and 10. The followers of the beast have a mark on their foreheads. The name of the beast and the number of its name, 1316. The followers of the Lamb have his seal upon their forehead. The name of his father and his own new name. Chapter 7 and verse 3 and chapter 14 and verse 1. The beast utters blasphemies and lies. Chapter 13 verses 5 and 6. Yet Christ is the faithful and true witness. And all he speaks is truth. 3.14. The beast makes war upon the saints. 13.7. The lamb makes war upon the beast and his followers. Chapter 19 and verse 11. And both the beast and the lamb have a final coming at the end of the age. Chapter 17, verses 7 to 18. Thirteen parallels. The beast is set up by the dragon to be a false messiah, a counterfeit Christ. The apparent power and glory which the beast possesses inspires the entire world. And everyone whose name is not written in the book will worship the beast and the dragon. Now this does not mean that everyone in the world will consciously bow the knee before Satan and his demonically empowered rulers. But rather that the whole world will put its trust in the beast and pledge devotion to it, whether it knows it or not. It's happened many times throughout history. It's not difficult to imagine how people would entrust their lives, their devotion to a powerful state and to a charismatic ruler. Seen it over and over and over again. And we'll explore the nature of this worship of the beast and the loyalty that he commands from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation next week when we explore the beast from the earth who is the false prophet. Verse 5. The beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. I'll bring out two points from these verses, major points, that we have to get if we're going to understand this text as a whole. Number one, the beast's power appears to be in his mouth. With his mouth, he utters prideful, haughty, blasphemous words. He blasphemes God. He blasphemes God's name. He blasphemes God's temple. He blasphemes God's people who are the temple, those who dwell in heaven. In other words, the beast's weapon of choice is his words. He represents those godless states and godless rulers who rise to power on the strength of their blasphemous rhetoric. One thinks of the way that Hitler in the Nuremberg rallies could captivate a crowd of hundreds of thousands on the strength of blasphemous doctrines like racial superiority and ethnic cleansing. How did what he was saying come across as true and captivating To that many people such that he could lead an entire nation 
into war. It's the delusion. It's the beast. The most terrifyingly dangerous states, regimes, dictators, and institutions are those who do not rely solely upon the threat of violence, the coercive power of the sword, but also upon their ability to command the loyalty of the masses by the power of their words. Secondly, we see again this familiar end times time frame. The beast is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months, 1260 days, three and a half years, time, times, and half a time. It's the same time period which, by the way, the little horn of Daniel 7 was granted authority, showing that the little horn of Daniel 7 and the beast of Revelation 13 are one and the same. We've already established that this familiar time frame, it appears over and over again in Revelation and in the book of Daniel, refers to the entirety of this present age of tribulation known as the last days, which means that the beast of Revelation 13 and the little horn of Daniel 7 cannot refer to one man at the end of the age who will arise to make war on the saints and finally be defeated by Christ at his return in power and glory. Rather, it confirms what we've already established, which is that the beast has multiple manifestations throughout history, and one final manifestation at the end of the age. Isn't that what John said in his first epistle? 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And he wrote this, Somewhere around 70 or 80 A.D., it's been the last hour for almost 2,000 years. For almost 2,000 years, it's been the age of the beast's authority. 1 John 4, 3, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is in the world already. Paul wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the coming of the man of lawlessness who is the final manifestation of the beast. But he also writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.6 that the mystery of lawlessness, the spirit of the Antichrist, is already at work and is at work throughout this age leading up to that climax. The beast, the mystery of lawlessness, the spirit of the Antichrist, are coming and is in the world already. Verse 7. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So with its satanic power and its blasphemous rhetoric, the beast will draw to itself the worship of the nations and will make war upon the saints throughout this age and will conquer them. The sheep are going to be slaughtered. Many, many of our brethren have, are, 
and will seal their testimony with their blood because they refuse to worship the beast. And so will some of us if we live long enough. Chapter 17 and verse 14, however, they will not have, he, the beast, will not have the victory. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. That's you. You are called, you are chosen, and you are faithful. And the lamb will come to your rescue. Christ will return to slay the beast with the breath of his mouth says 2 Thessalonians 2.8. All right, so let's tie it all up. What can we learn about the beast from Revelation 13, 1 to 10? Let me give you five summary statements that are on the back of your bulletin. Statement number one. The beast represents wicked kings and wicked kingdoms, godless states and godless rulers. Godless institutions and godless heads of institutions who arise throughout this age to persecute and to kill the saints of God. Summary statement number two. These wicked regimes and wicked rulers are empowered by Satan and all the forces of hell. Statement number three, the beast-like rulers and regimes wield both the coercive power of the sword in order to force submission, submit or die, submit or lose your job, submit or be denied tenure, and the seductive power of speech in order to inspire loyalty. And he works through both the sword and the tongue. Number four. Satan sets up these beastly rulers and regimes as counterfeit Christs. False messiahs who invite the people to trust and follow and eventually worship the state. When I was in China in 2004, this was very apparent because just about every business or home that you would walk into, there would be a shrine with a set up around a picture, and the picture was of Chairman Mao. And the people of China were invited to pray to the image of the beast, to trust the beast for what they needed, for the bread that they needed were the ration cards that they needed. The beast had made all of the people deny that there was a God in heaven and seek their provision from him. It happened in China. It happened in the Soviet Union. It's happened throughout history. And it'll happen till Christ comes back. Number five. Beast-like rulers and beast-like regimes will rise and fall throughout this age 
until the end of the age, when a final beast, a final antichrist, a man of lawlessness will arise as never before to make war upon the saints and to incite the world into a blasphemous rebellion against God known in chapter 16 as Armageddon. This final beast will be destroyed at that point along with all of his followers at the second coming of Christ. The final verses of this passage provide us with a stunning picture of God's sovereignty over all of these events. Over the salvation of the saints, the perseverance of the saints, even through the suffering of the saints. Look again at verse 7. All authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. I want us to just sit, not in judgment over this text, but in awe of this text. And the stunning truth that is on display here. There is a book. It's called the book of life of the lamb that was slain. And in this book have been written the names of the saints. And they were inscribed in the book from before the foundations of the world. In other words, before any of the people represented by those names had done anything good or bad. Before any of them came to be. Now. Some of you are reading in the King James. Or the New King James. Or the NIV. And your Bible doesn't read like this. It says something different. It says something like. Everyone whose name has not been written. In the book of life of the Lamb. That was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words. Applying the time of the foundation of the world. To when the Lamb was slain. And not to when the names of the saints were written. That is not the correct reading of this verse. From the foundation of the world describes when the names were written in the book of life, not when the lamb was slain. The lamb was slain around 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem. The names were written in the book by the eternal electing decree of God from before the foundations of the earth. And I know that messes with a lot of revivalists' invitations. Come up here and get your name written in the book. It doesn't work like that. They need to read Revelation 13.8 and its parallel Revelation 17.8. Because even though Revelation 13.8 could be ambiguous from the foundation of the world, could go with when the names were written or it could go for when the lamb was slain, Revelation 17.8, which describes the same thing, is anything but ambiguous. It is explicitly clear. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. The names were written in the book from the foundations of the earth. Now, if the names of the blood-bought saints were written from the foundation of the world before any of them came to be, 
then their inclusion in the book cannot be on the basis of their works, nor on the basis of their faith. In other words, the cause and effect relationship of Revelation 13.8 and 17.8 is not they believed, therefore their names were written in the book. Rather, the cause and effect relationship is their names were written in the book, therefore they believed and they keep believing and they do not worship the beast. This is a book of destiny, not a book that records decisions. The names which were written were written by the sovereign, unconditional, electing decree of our God before the foundations of the world. He wrote the names. He sent the lamb. And the lamb was slain and with his blood purchased eternal life for everyone whose name has been written from the foundation of the world in the book. And the blood of the lamb has infallible omnipotent power to save the saints and to keep them saved to keep them from stumbling, to keep them from worshiping the beast, no matter how attractive the beast and his lofty claims are, and no matter how coercive and violent his threats against the saints become. That's stunning. But so's the next part. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the call for the perseverance and faith of the saints. Evidently, those whose names God included from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb that was slain, such that they will not worship the beast but remain faithful to Christ, He also ordained that they would suffer at the hands of the beast. That's the sense of verse 10. Those going to captivity and those going to slaughter are not those who are worshiping the beast, but those who are refusing to worship the beast. The saints' imprisonment and death are under the sovereign hand of God. Did you see the predestinating language of verse 10? If anyone is to be taken captive, in other words, determined by the sovereign counsel of God before worlds began, they will be taken captive. And if any of us are to be slain by the sovereign predestinating counsel of God before worlds began, they will be slain. And John looks at this stunning truth and he says, here is the call for the perseverance and faith of the saints. Where? In the knowledge that your salvation and your perseverance through suffering were written from before the foundation of the world. Those destined for captivity go to captivity. Those destined for the sword are slain by the sword. So not only are the salvation of the saints predestined, but so are their sufferings. Now here is a dilemma. Some of you are feeling it, and that's good. If God has already determined who will worship the beast and who will not, which is exactly what 13.8 and 17.8 say, 
what's the point of calling the saints to perseverance? Isn't John wasting his time? Isn't he wasting his ink with that last phrase of verse 10? It's a confusion a lot of people feel when we begin to talk about God's sovereign election and predestination and foreordination. But let me ask you a question. Are you in the book? Was your name written from before the foundations of the world in the book? Are you in the book? How do you know? How how do you know if your name's in the book such that you will not worship the beast? Well, you can't know by looking into the book Because the book is closed up, it is sealed, and it will not be opened until it is called for on the day of judgment. Revelation 20 and verse 12. You can't know by peering into the book. But that doesn't mean you can't know. There is a way to know whether your name is in the book without looking into the book, which is impossible. Look at how John describes the saints whose names are written in the book in Revelation 12, 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who are the saints? Those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Look at Revelation 14, 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The saints, those whose names were inscribed from before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain, are those whose faith is in Jesus and in his gospel and whose faith is manifested in the daily pursuit of Godward righteousness. They keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Not past tense, they kept. Not past tense, they decided. Not past tense, they raised their hand, they walked the aisle, they were baptized. There's no past tense here. They keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. The only way you can know whether your name is written in the book of life in the past and thereby whether you will be kept from worshiping the beast by the saving power of the Lamb in the future is whether or not you have perseverance in faith and obedience in the present. The only way for you to know whether your name was written in the book of life in the past and therefore whether you will be kept by the saving power of the blood of the Lamb from bowing before the satanic power of the beast in the future is if you persevere in faith and obedience in the present, in every moment of present until the day that you go to meet Christ. So if you can say today, right now, in the present, that your hope and your faith are resting in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and everlasting life, and that your life backs up that testimony with 
the purposeful pursuit of righteousness, not the attainment of perfect righteousness, but a directional purposeful pursuit of Godward righteousness. My desire and my habit is to keep the commandments of God. I'm heading in a direction and that direction is holiness. Then you may have utter confidence that your name is in the book. And you will not succumb to the beast. But you shall surely persevere to the very end. Even if your predestined end lies through the path of captivity and slaughter. And it is in this rock solid confidence in the sovereign power of God. To keep you from stumbling that John calls the saints. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of the saints. In other words, the beast is not sovereign. God is. So walk in that confidence and don't you let any government, any institution, any authority draw you away from Christ with lofty, blasphemous promises, nor drive you away from Christ with violent threats. Not if your name's in the book. We are the blood-bought saints of the Lamb, and we follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Here is the call for the endurance and faith of us.